This week, Keith is in the land down under, so I'm joined by April Wright. We're going to be discussing a jQuery plugin that's been exploited for years, finally getting patched. A remote, remote code implementation flaw found in Medtronic cardiac programmers, hackers hiding in cryptocurrency, uh, malware in Adobe Flash updates, and the government is finally rolling out two-factor authentication for federal agency domains. And Disney is helping women from across their company to become developers. Special, as I said, special co-host is April Wright joining me today. So stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of Application Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. Layered Insight is the industry's first embedded security approach for containers. Trusted by Global 1000 Enterprises to secure their containerized applications, it's the only solution that requires no root privileges, has zero dependency on the underlying infrastructure, and is fully portable across any container environment. Unified DevOps and SecOps, enabling the rapid development of containerized applications without worrying about security. To learn more, please visit layeredinsight.com forward slash ASW. Rapid7 powers the practice of SecOps. Using shared data, analytics, and automated workflows, SecOps unites IT, DevOps, and security teams to make security an outcome of innovation. Rapid7 combines technology, expertise, and advocacy to drive vulnerability management, application security, incident detection, and log management for more than 7,000 organizations worldwide. Power up your SecOps practice with a free trial at rapid7.com forward slash securityweekly. What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 36 of Application Security Weekly for October 22nd, 2018. I am not your host, Keith Hoodlett. I am, in fact, your host, Paul Asatarian, joined remotely by none other than April Wright. April, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Great to be back. Yes, nice to have you. So I have someone to talk to, and I'm lucky it's someone as fabulous uh, as you, April. So this is going to be a lot of fun, as usual. We're trouble when we get together on the show, too. I was thinking about yeah. that earlier when Sam told me that you're the co-host today. I'm like, oh, this is trouble. Oh, <laughs> uh, So uh, did you have a good time at DerbyCon? Last time I saw you was, in fact, at DerbyCon. Oh, it was great. Yeah, I, uh, it, was, it was a really good DerbyCon. It was a little weird in the new venue, mm. but um, yeah, overall, it was excellent. Now, did you give a presentation? I did. I gave a training and a presentation. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's awesome. So you were busy while you were out there. I was. And busy having fun, too. I yeah. think I, I saw you <laughs> in one of those more fun moments where I was like, I'm going to go back to my room now. And then I walk across the lobby. I'm like, nope, I'm going to stay in chat for a while <laughs> and go to bed much later than I should. <laughs> LobbyCon was in full effect. It was. At both hotels. It was, it was awesome. It was awesome. Uh, just a quick announcement before we get into it. Join us for our webcast with Signal Sciences titled, Which Way You Should Shift Testing in the SDLC. The webcast will be held on November 8th from 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And really, all you need to know, it's going to be me, Larry Pesci, and Zane Lackey. And then just for that reason, to have those two folks uh, and myself all together is going to be a really interesting uh, webcast and, and good dynamic. So securityweekly.com forward slash Signal Sciences and register today. 
Um, I really thought in April in the bugs, breaches, and more section, uh, as we go through these like first three, that these were brought up all kinds of potential topics for conversation uh, between us. And the first is the jQuery plugin that's been exploited for years is finally getting patched. And I, I don't know if you uh, had a chance to read this article or you know you had your your kind of take on it. Yeah, um, this was kind of kind of I mean not surprising. So anytime you rely on a third party piece of code, you're gonna have to rely on their patching as well. Are you more secure if you develop your own jQuery type thing? Probably not. Um, even though this was pretty big and out there. Um, the, the funny thing about it was that it wasn't actually a problem with jQuery per se. It was more of a change that Apache made that made it so that jQuery became the vulnerable avenue for attack. Yeah, that, so that was interesting. So was it Apache changed something that made uploads not work, but the workaround was to use jQuery where uploads still worked? That was the part that was weird to me. Yeah, it was HT access permissions, basically. I mean, it, it seemed like something really small, but it mm. turned into something really big. And that's kind of, I think that's really one of the problems when we have you know a, a complex systems is that you never know how things are going to work together. You never know how things are going to break when other things change. This was the theory behind um, when, when we had uh, uh, like, uh, Gosh, what are they called? Um, when, when we had uh, like boxes that would just uh, appliances, when they, we would have, yeah. people would have appliances and the appliances would um, have everything you needed in a certain configuration that you needed and they'd be really hard to upgrade. So an appliance would have fixed this, maybe. Maybe. So many of <laughs> but those But they probably would have updated anyway and had no idea that it happened. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. You know, I, thought, I think it's interesting they say in the article that. Um, the plugin is the second most star jQuery project on GitHub after the jQuery framework itself. And talk about how jQuery ha is used uh, all over the place. It's been forked 7,800 times and is used by the popular uh, CMSs and CRMs, uh, including WordPress, Drupal, and Joomla, as its PHP is the back end. And we were talking about this before. And it it's interesting, like the just the history of vulnerabilities with those particular platforms. And then PHP underneath it, I mean, PHP file upload vulnerabilities are used as like a, like a basically a testing ground when you're first learning application security. It's like one of the first things you do is put up a vulnerable PHP app and exploit the file upload capability. Because I mean, in most cases, that is a stepping stone to lots of other vulnerabilities as well, including you know remote code execution, file inclusion, all, all of those other vulnerabilities. And here we still are today and, and this is stuff we did you know potentially 20 years ago and here we are today and this same technology is still being used and it's really that's really scary for me that we haven't really worked to replace some of this technology with something more updated well i mean apache has been around as long as i can remember mm -hmm. and it's a pretty mature product it's um Actually, it's funny because GitHub runs jQuery itself. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, but and they said that they weren't affected, but uh, they patched anyway, just just to be safe. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, Apache's been around forever, and it, to think that a small change like that would have such a big impact 
down the chain of software that, that relies on it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if anybody could have foreseen this or right. even tried. Yeah, but it, what what's crazy to me is that this has been around for like three years. How have we not seen this in uh, in logs? How have we not seen this um, happening in uh, like blue team? How, how has nobody found out about this until today? <laughs> Yeah, and the article says they can go back to a, a YouTube videos uh, that are dated August 2015. Like, how did we, how did we miss that? How did we not find that YouTube video? Right, that was my first thought too. Like, how did we miss this? I don't know. Um, I, I, and what I kind of think about, you know, speaking of like it's just been so much time, and we're using the same technology and having all these problems. And there's so many much newer frameworks that I feel can provide a much better level of security. And I haven't researched it personally. I'm curious to hear from our listeners. Like, are there replacements for WordPress that are built on technologies that are more reliable and are more, they're easier to secure, right? In, in all these new hipster languages. I feel like jQuery was a hipster language, but now it's not, right? <laughs> Well, I know that there are replacements that are like commercial, but you're going to have the same open source versus commercial argument where do more eyes on the code make it more secure versus proprietary um, yeah. code. So um, it's, yeah, it's, it's all about like what, what you feel comfortable with. If you, if you're going to run the most popular software on the internet, like WordPress or whatever, you're going to find that you're going to be attacked more than if you're running the third most popular. Yeah. So, no, it's true. Um, yeah, just having uh, security by um, by unpopularity. Yeah. Thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you know, the the WordPress is interesting because it's almost like the the open source model and the ease of which I can add on to WordPress is the thing that hurts it the most from security because now you've lowered the bar to publish a plugin or, or an extension or whatever. And now all of these, this code is out there and it's all, I mean, most WordPress plugins have some level of vulnerability in them. And there's been tons of studies done on, on WordPress plugins so much so that it's not even worth discussing anymore because so many people have done, you know, the independent research cause it's all out there and open yet. I don't see it getting much better. To be honest, I think they would have to do something that was similar to the Apple um, Apple Store model. So um, ha having vetted apps, having limited uh, use, I, I, I don't know. They'd have to completely rework the the framework for having plugins in WordPress because uh, just being community driven means that you're going to get code from all over the place and it's not vetted by anybody necessarily. Yeah, uh, and, and I tend to not you know, like lean towards commercial plugins and not some of the open source ones, although that's not a very good strategy on the surface, right? I mean, my thinking is, well, that maybe they'll pay more attention to it because people are paying for it and they don't want to have a vulnerability because they might lose customers, uh, which in a small shop, I mean, that, that could be the case that in a crowded market. Um, but that doesn't guarantee anything, right? Right. Uh, are you, there are some guarantees that you're vulnerable if you're running uh, lib SSH of a specific version, which I thought was really, really interesting. And another one that uh, I think has been out there for, for some time. And I was struggling to understand this one, 
but they basically posted a tweet that makes it very easily understandable. And, and basically someone put on Twitter that was like, holy shit. He's like, I don't know much about this protocol, but if I understand it correctly, you can just claim, yeah, I'm logged in and no need to verify and it'll work. And the reply was, yeah, basically that's it. <laughs> so that's exactly it. It's just like any bad coding on a website where you have a, a, um, a variable that's like off equals one. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's basically what you're doing with this. <laughs> it's pretty yep. But it's only with the server. It's not with the client. So if you're not running the server, then you aren't vulnerable. Yeah. And you wonder like how long this has been out there. I don't know if they said it in the article, but they certainly show Shodan as having 3,000 uh, servers on the internet. And I, I kind of look at LibSSH as that smaller, more portable uh, SSH library. And typically, I come across it if I'm you know, compiling a security tool or, or building a container for security tools. And I'm like, oh yeah, I need LibSSH. Because most of the like, programmatic ways you're interfacing with the SSH protocol Typically, a developer is going to use libssh, so I've had to include that and compile it, and I've done so just happily not doing a code review every time I've done it, right, <laughs> on the internet. And that's typically the use case, and the article does say it's, you know, using a lot of IoT devices or, like back in the day, you were pointing out, April uh, appliances. This is, this is, I mean, it's just bad coding. It's, it's, it, it, it's putting a lot of trust in the in user input that shouldn't be there instead of double checking the, the user input or keeping the the user input from ha saying certain things um, yeah this this could have been easily prevented yeah and, and I should correct most of the client li the client library is not affected as the server uh, the server so you have to be running the uh, a server that's based on the lib SSH um, library which makes more sense that it's in in iot devices i think of it as a smaller more portable library and you could have it in places that you don't know of on your internal network uh, if you're not looking and that's my concern with the jquery vulnerability and this vulnerability is it represents that class of vulnerabilities that can be very difficult to uh, identify in your internal network or in your own internal development processes yeah, and the number of um, of third party apps and and uh, appliances and other things, uh, network devices, everything that uses SSH um, could potentially be vulnerable. That's a that's a lot of patching. This could take a long time to fix. Yeah, I, I you know I think we're fortunate in libssh is. Unless you've changed the banner, I mean, that's going to get you some level of visibility. Like the Shodan search shows that the SSH server was compiled with lib SSH. But as I've seen in a lot of uh, IoT hardware, oftentimes they're changing or obscuring the banner. So that's not a good test. And then the next way you figure that out is you go start exploiting it in your environment. And that's, well, that could be bad for a lot of reasons that you could crash the service or crash the device. And then... If it's successful, that's great. But if it fails, was it really vulnerable or not? Or did your exploit just not work on that platform, right? If the IoT device is uh, an ARM-based device, but your exploit testing is uh, x386-based, then your exploit's going to fail, but not because it wasn't vulnerable, just because your exploit didn't work. 
And this is where a least privileged model is going to help too, because if you don't allow root logins, then that's going to limit your exposure. Well, that's going to limit your damage a little bit. Um, if you have um, renamed root or uh, not allowed logins, or um, you use certificates instead of passwords, I mean, some of these things are going to mitigate the yeah. the destruction that this can cause. Yep. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I still I go back to in both these cases, right? It, it being very difficult if you're developing your own software internally, and you've done the threat modeling, and you've talked about the security of your project, and you're all in agreement, and then you're off to give it to developers to go code something, and they look at the requirements if they read the requirements and interpret them correctly. That's a totally different discussion. But they're like, oh, I need to provide SSH you know, in, in my application somewhere. So I'm not going to write the library myself because that would be silly. I'm going to go get the open source version and include it. If that's not in your threat modeling and not in your visibility of what, you know, uh, programmers are including in their software, then you're at a significant disadvantage in your security architecture, in my opinion. And we wouldn't necessarily want them to write their own SSH library, though. I mean, using the, the one that's had lots of people looking at it and fixing it and the open source, I, I think that that's a, a better, going to be a better library that you're going to, better piece of software that you're going to end up with in the end. But the, the whole point of including defense in depth is so that when something like this happens, you have other controls that are going to mitigate the, the damage that occurs so that when when the attack happens, when the worst happens, when SSH is vulnerable and just allowing people in, um, that there are other things in place, uh, like um, having uh, uh, jump servers, uh, things like that, having uh, like just keeping things off of the internet when you're doing SSH. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, least privilege, um, yeah, and, and patching everything else as well, so that if they do get in, there's not a whole lot that they can do once they're on the system. Yeah, I, in, I, what you're describing, I definitely am in tune with. It's more a holistic view of your security, right? And I think that the threat modeling has to take into consideration, like, okay, what if we're using a library and there's a heinous vulnerability in it? I think Heartbleed put that on everyone's radar, or at least it should have put that on everyone's radar, so that you have some process to, as April was saying, reduce your risk, but you also have some process to discover that more easily in your environment and work on remediating it uh, across your code, right? And figuring out where all your instances of lib SSH are can be, can be daunting had you not created your SDLC to properly inventory everything that you're using on an ongoing basis. And if you're like, well, how do I accomplish that? Like, it's too late. Like, now you've got to back up and, and implement that. And of course, there's lots of, you know, solutions on the market uh, today that can, that can help with that. But I feel like that's not in a lot of people's planning for their developers today, which gets us talking about all the latest, you know, incidents, Equifax being one of them, uh, about, you know, that there is risk introduced when you're incorporating these libraries. And it's about having a plan, I guess, to summarize that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that most developers are capable of 
telling you where in their code they use certain libraries, but they have to kind of forensically go back into their code and, and tell you that. It's not something that they have a list of, which is something they should have a list of right. as part of good SDLC hygiene. But um, yeah, it, it it's it's tricky. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, because that, I mean, you know, being hackers that we are, we're like, well, that's great. So you're monitoring your source code repository. And as developers are checking things in, there's a process that's making sure that there's no vulnerable libraries in there. But what about that other group that's using a different source control uh, project? And are we monitoring them or not? I don't know. And, and that's, you know, it's always those exceptions that get us in trouble when, in security wise. Or those legacy software pieces that yep. nobody that somebody wrote and they don't work there anymore and nobody wants to touch it because it just works like yep. people don't under, even understand all the components um <laughs> but that's never good never good uh never good is people hacking into your pacemaker as well which i thought this was kind of interesting i don't know that it was necessarily a flaw in the software but like basically it sounded like riding on the vpn connection that developers use to update the pacemaker software was more the, the case here yeah it said that it used a vpn to establish a connection but um once that uh once it checked to, for the update it didn't check again to see if it was on the vpn before downloading it um which is kind of a our, kind of weird vulnerability but um I, I mean, the the they mentioned that eight thousand vulnerabilities were discovered across four different uh, pacemaker programmers, and that's just pacemaker programmers, which are the things that program pacemakers. Yeah. So imagine all of the other devices out there. I don't understand. I don't even understand why these need to be internet connected. Like, why do you need an internet connected pacemaker? <laughs> yeah. If I mean, the workaround is to have a, a representative come out with a USB and update your pacemaker, why isn't that just how it's done? Right. But now, I, I do I have a USB port somewhere? I don't want to know where that USB port is. All right. <laughs> well, that's the workaround. That's how they're. Um, they they said that they're uh, working on additional security updates that a Medtronic representative will manually update via a secured USB. Yikes. Yikes. And what's the supply chain look like? I mean, there's tons of ways you could potentially get around that. Uh, you know, of course, this has been popularized uh, years ago in the, the TV show Homeland, I think, right? They attacked the vice president, uh, you know, in the, the pacemaker front. And of course, you know, wireless connectivity is is going to be sought after in this case so that, again, I don't have some kind of external port on my body, right? But that you know, the authentication and, and authorization uh, to that network, I think, is what the article was definitely bringing out that's in question, that they could have done a much better job uh, in the name of patient safety. I just, I wouldn't want something that could be remotely accessed or updated remotely. Or I just want, I just want a pacemaker that works. I don't need a pacemaker that I can connect to from my phone. I don't need a pacemaker that my doctor can give me updates to it frequently. I just want something that works. Right. Well, I, I don't think I don't think we're ready for connected medical implants that allow us to live. I just I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, I I agree, I agree wholeheartedly. I the state of IoT security, while there are some strides in in 
ways that have been uh, in methods that have improved the security of IoT devices, I certainly agree. Like we're not we're not there. I mean, we all kind of freaked out when like Apple Pay and Android Pay were released, but you know now we're talking about something that's inside your body that someone could hack. Like that's that's a big leap. Yeah. Yeah, I I wouldn't trust it. If if I had the choice between connected and not connected, I I know which I would choose, hundred percent. Yeah, because like you know, in a, a payment scenario, the worst case is I gotta maybe get a new credit card, right? <laughs> and the other one is is like, you know, I I could die. I mean, those are two yeah. very very different results, right? Right. Yeah, and it, I mean. So there was another article that we had this week about what the FDA is doing about this, and they are taking some major strides to try to make the manufacturers and um, all the people involved with these types of devices more accountable. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess this has to happen in order for it to get better one day. I yeah uh, yeah no I and I you know. The three-letter government agencies uh, that start with an F, I, I think I'm somewhat disappointed, and it doesn't inspire much confidence. I think that they've certainly done some good, don't get me wrong, and there's certainly you know, benefits to society to having you know, those regulatory bodies, certainly, but more often than not, I mean, you can point out some pretty glaring holes uh, in their processes. Um, of course, you know, the FDA isn't like, how did the FDA let it get to this point without more stringent regulations? It's one pretty glaring hole. Like we're kind of operating after the fact as April. So they can, we're going to wait for people to die before we have regulations. Like let's get ahead of that. Um, and the FDA has done some good things within the hospital uh, arena, but I don't know about you, April, but have you been getting a lot of spam calls to your mobile numbers? Has there been like an uptick in that? I feel like there's been an uptick in that recently. I almost never get spam calls. You're lucky. You'll have to share how you did that someday uh, soon because uh, I get a lot. And, and I know a lot of people here and other people I talk to get a lot as well. Um, and the FTC has put down some regulations. So they actually found that they were spoofing prepaid cell phone numbers in your area code and the three digit numbers that are after that and that was a no-no and they stopped those people but i'm like what else are you doing because like everyone's seen in uh, except for april apparently are seeing a huge uptick uh in this and putting software on their phones to help you know prevent against it um i mean so much so that like i i, I want multiple phones or a phone with multiple sim cards and just I'm going to get a, a new number. And and that's the one I give out to people. And then hopefully that doesn't get leaked out and get spam calls. Although I'm sure it will because a lot of these are automated. So I use Google Voice. And I don't know if they filter a lot of it out or something. But I mean, even, even on that number versus my mobile number, I almost never get spam calls. You're lucky. You're lucky. You've probably been re so. really good about not publishing your number too. I have opted out of virtually everything that you could, one can opt out of on the internet in terms of people search and yep. um, things like that. Yeah, I've done a poor job of that too. I know, like when you go to retail uh, and you go buy something in the store, and they're like, "What's your phone number?" I'm like, "What? Well, like you ask me on a date? Like what? 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 I'm just I'm like I'm I'm buying something at a store. Like I'm I'm buying a 
couple of tools at Home Depot. What do you need my phone number for? And obviously that's contributed. I, th- I think they're selling uh, those lists is my guess. So I have two numbers that I'll give out when asked, and I don't want to give out my number. Um, one of them is uh, it's like an app on my phone uh, that gives, gives, me, gives me a burner number, yep. and I can have multiple burner numbers, and then I can just destroy them when I'm done. There's also a phone number that you can uh, either give to people or forward people once you're already on the phone you like hang up or you, you hit pound and then or, or flash and you do some stuff and I have I have instructions on my computer nice. and uh, it transfers them to uh, basically they get rickrolled on the phone oh that's awesome yeah. <laughs> I want that that's clever I definitely want to rickroll all those all those spam calls and and other people that just call me randomly too. I would just rickroll them just for fun. <laughs> Not you, of course, April. I would never okay. do that. I'll unless, have to tweet that out later. Unless you did that to me first, and then we would just be in a rickroll battle. <laughs> like, no, I really need to talk to you. No, it's just too much fun. <laughs> that can be too much fun. Uh, all right. So uh, at that, I'm going to take a short break here. Uh, we don't have a, a formal guest for the show, so we're going to do stories, but uh, we're going to take a short break now and come back and finish talking about some of the stories in the news, including, of course, Facebook, because we can't have a show without talking about Facebook. Stay tuned. Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences, demand more from your WAF. Learn more at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Do you need a web application security solution that can improve your detection rate and enable easier remediation? Acunetics has a fully automated solution that can detect and report over 4,500 web vulnerabilities. Fast and scalable, it can scan thousands of pages without interruption, including HTML5, JavaScript, and single-page applications. Acunetics provides accuracy with the lowest false positives by combining black box and white box testing. For more information, visit acunetics.com forward slash security weekly. Hard-coded credentials can be trouble, but not as much trouble as a vulnerable DevOps environment. If you want protection without the hassle of security slowing you down, CyberArk, the number one provider in privilege access security, has the solution for you. With CyberArk Conjure, developers can easily secure secrets across any DevOps toolchain or platform, whether your application runs in the cloud or on-premises. Eliminate the headaches of managing secrets and try Conjure open source for free with no strings attached. Visit conjure.org forward slash ASW to get started today. Welcome back, everyone, to Application Security Weekly. If you're interested in quality over quantity and having meaningful conversations instead of just a badge scan, join us. Uh, we'll be there, Security Weekly, on April 1st through the 3rd at Disney's Contemporary Resort for InfoSec World 2019. You can connect and network with like-minded individuals in search of actionable information. Use the registration code OS19-SECWEEK, S-E-C-W-E-E-K. That gets you 15% off the main conference or a world pass. All righty. Actually, and then there's one more announcement that I was supposed to read. Patrick Laverty 
One of our illustrious co-hosts is presenting pen testing tips, tricks, and stories with Aaron Herndon at B-Sides Connecticut 2018. We mistakenly said 2019 because we're doing 2019 planning and we say 2019 sometimes when we mean 2018. B-Sides Connecticut 2018, uh, the ticket sales are open now and it's 20 bucks if you go to bsidect.org. That's happening on Saturday, November 3rd and is always a fun event. Uh, and April Wright is still with us. It's got us all thinking about how we can have SIP devices in our in our homes. Um, but we're going to continue talking about application uh, and application security. And uh, Facebook is in the is in the news, and as they usually are, and lately not in a very good light, which is interesting. And this week they're talking about uh, their video conference portal. Which more information about that? We covered this, I think, last week. But why would you trust Facebook now with the... I think they're starting to feel the pain of their abuse of the trust of their users. Um, And they're trying to launch a new Facebook camera, phone, portal, in-home thing. And no one trusts it, ironically enough. Do you have one of these devices, April, in your home? No. No, no, no. I do not. Um, And I probably will not. Uh, no, um, between it, uh, talking to back to Facebook and being integrated with Alexa, I'm, I'm out. Yeah, <laughs> I'm out. Yeah. I mean, just Facebook. I mean, I saw an article recently that Facebook was going to start acquiring security companies and had been, uh, in talks with several security companies. I'm curious to see when that actually announces. I mean, I'll see that when it announces, I actually subscribe to things that tell me, when a security company uh, gets acquired. So I'm interested to see which ones Facebook may acquire uh, if that in fact happens. But, you know, April, you were pointing out during the break, like it's not the fact that Facebook doesn't have security. It's all about the the privacy and how they use your data. Right. Since we are the product. Um, so this it's funny that the portal, as soon as I saw it, I immediately thought of this, uh, this device that I used to have. It was the 3Com Audrey. And it was this uh, little screen and it had a little infrared keyboard and it's supposed to sit in your kitchen um, and or, you know, wherever. And, and it would integrate with your Palm Pilot. This is around like 2000. Wow. It would integrate with your Palm Pilot and you could have like, it would update your uh, your calendar and your to-do list and your shopping list and all this other stuff. But it was like way ahead of its time. Um, and this thing just totally immediately reminded me of it, except that it didn't really do video calling, but just the whole concept of this touchscreen device that, was in you know part of your life now like is this is this what we have to look forward to in the future right <laughs> clearly the the future is here i think we all kind of saw those things in sci-fi tv and movies the video calling device was a very futuristic thing um what we maybe didn't think about is the privacy implications which and trust which is a and- yeah, and Amazon already did this with their, they had a, a very similar device for calling um, and, you know, Alexa enabled and, and they had all these commercials, like you give one to your, you know, uh, grandmother or something and then you have one at home and the kids can talk and it's supposed to be super easy. Yeah, I have two of those devices, the Echo Show, and okay. the calling feature is terrible. And the, the whole secure, I had to turn it off because like it would was like trying to sync my address book 
And at one time my son like made a call to someone in my address book, like through the thing. And I had to like, I, I was like, how did it get a hold of my address book? I had to go like a couple rounds of turning stuff off to make it not do that, which was kind of, kind of scary. What I like about the, the echo shows is you can just tell it to play movies and stuff. Uh, and it'll do that, which is nice for the kids. But yeah, the calling feature is just, it's just horrible, horrible privacy and insecurity. And I turned off all those features since then. So <laughs> this thing is funny. It's, it's got, um, it, it uses AI, but it doesn't do facial recognition. You can disable the camera. It comes with a camera cover. They try to make it seem like it's like they care. Private. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. But then, um, but then they had, they're like kind of unsure. Um, the, the VP uh, in charge of portal so that he doesn't know if uh, ad targeting will be used or not. Like, yeah. how does he not know that? Right, right. He just doesn't <laughs> want to tell you. What, what I find interesting and somewhat scary, I mean, stuff that people know i mean people know i like kung fu movies right so the first thing i did with the echo show was i was like play a kung fu movie and initially it started playing legendary weapons of china which is one of my favorite kung fu movies i'm like it knows me i'm like that's so creepy actually that it knows me in that way i was kind of weirded out but also happy that it was playing legendary weapons of china at the same time and I, I know a lot of people, myself included, have had weird experiences where you're just having a conversation, not even like offline in a room with some device, your phone or something else, and you suddenly start seeing ads about it. I yes. have opted out of all personalized ads that I possibly can. I don't know how this happens. <laughs> it's terrifying. It's interesting because, you know, my friends get a hold of it and add various items of an adult nature to my shopping list which then impacts the advertisements that i see i also think that my purchase of uh the tushy uh bidet uh just made like the ai and machine learning think things about me that necessarily aren't true <laughs> so i claim so i saw some very interesting personal hygiene and in, in adult personal items in my various advertisements, which was entertaining, actually. <laughs> Things that I did not know existed. I was like, wow, that was, that's a new one. I, I think that's in the realm of adversarial inputs. So I'm not, it, not it, really yes, sure. <laughs> yes. I think there's a special category. Like they got me put into like, I really, the, the bucket of this person really cares that his butt is clean kind of category, <laughs> which is a scary category to be in. Just, throwing that out there i mean there are worse categories. there are worse like, there are worse categories right i mean it speaks to hygiene which somehow segues into pleasure i i guess for some but yeah it was very weird it was very weird and now no one believes me when i tell them that it was seated in my yeah no one believes me so that stuff's that stuff's crazy uh so uh hackers are hiding cryptocurrency malware in adobe flash updates I mean, that's no surprise. Are people still running Flash? I thought, can we just, is Flash really still a thing? I don't know. It is. It is. Um, this, this one, they, uh, so it was only, not. it wasn't available from Adobe. It was a valid update that people would install, but they didn't get it from Adobe, and they don't know how people were getting it, which is kind of scary. Um, it would be nice to know, was it coming from, like, uh, 
Softopedia or one of those mm. download sites? Was it coming from a website pop-up? Um, they have no idea. So mm. it would be nice to know what some of the vectors were, although we can probably guess. Was this the one that it was a legit update and it actually installed the update, right? But yeah. it also installed malware. So you're patched, but you have malware. Right. It's just a Trojan yeah. with, um, with crypto mining, crypto jacking in the background. And it made sure that no one else could exploit your version of Adobe Flash unless <laughs> they had a zero day for the latest version of Flash, which, I mean, based on history, a lot of people probably have. Yeah, and it, I mean, it was just, it was mining Monero, just like everything else seems to. Pretty much. It was going to a single wallet, which is a, a little weird, but I'm sure they were spreading that out over multiple, making it untraceable. Yep. Uh, apparently, the government's rolling out two-factor authentication for federalagency.gov domains. Kind of interesting. Only for the administrators of the websites, not for everybody. <sighs> interesting. So only for web administrators. And I wonder what type of two-factor is. There's, I think, huge differences between SMS authenticator apps and a physical token. They said it was Google Authenticator. Gotcha, gotcha. Which isn't bad. Um, no. I mean, still, if someone gets your phone, you know, and, and you're, you're, you know, it's kind of cached in there, uh, you, you, someone could get that, right? That's always my fear with Google Authenticator is if I lose my phone, which tends to happen, thankfully not recently, but does tend to happen. You know, if they can get into the phone somehow, they've got access to my Google Authenticator. I mean, unless you're putting two-factor authentication on your two-factor authentication, is it, then is it, is it three-factor or four-factor at that? Anyway. You can't triple stamp a double stamp. <laughs> <laughs> True. Um, so I have two phones. I have an Android phone. I have a, an iOS. I've got um, uh, tablets. I mean, you can put the app on multiple devices too, so that if you do lose one device, you still yeah. have the other ones to be able to get into it, which is my fear, which is why I try to keep them, you know, at least one at home. It's like the designated survivor of uh, right. uh, <laughs> two factor. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, then you're of course you're limiting yourself if someone breaks into your home and you know steals your tablet just to get your two factor. I mean, that's you know you're you're, you're limiting your risk certainly. Um, I went to physical tokens for my two factor to separate it from my phone, um, just just because I'm awful with my phone uh, and I, I lose it a lot. And if my kids get a hold of it, my kids are hackers and it it could be bad. So I went to a physical factor. And recently I've been looking, I don't know if you've looked in this, April, but I'm looking at the facing keys, but, and they're really cheap and they're, they're functional, right? You can get like a USB and with NFC for like $16, 16 or $17, which is pretty good. Um, but the problem is they're made in China. And I'm like, I don't know if I trust it now. Like I, I want to implement them, but I don't know if I trust it. Is it, could they do some, I mean, they could theoretically, but I, I'm not, I need to research it more. Have you looked could, into that at all? But everything else we buy is made there. Yeah, it's true. Not everything, but you know, a lot of things. Uh, our phones, our computers. That's yeah, true. <laughs> My phone's made in China primarily too. So yeah, well, what's the yeah? I mean, I'm just looking for excuses for me to buy a cheaper, cheaper key so I can have you know multiple uh, one in the safe and you know one that I, I carry with me at least two, right? Because then, but then the problem becomes if you're traveling, like. Personally, people that I know in the security field that travel a lot are like, I can't have physical two-factor 
they're like, because I'm traveling and it gets stolen or I lose it while I'm away, they're like, now I'm really screwed because like my backup is, you know, somewhere else, um, which is bad. Right. And does that have a, another factor on top? So you have the password and then you have the device. Is there also something else? Uh, well, let's see, what am I asking? So uh, if somebody found the device, wouldn't it be easier for them to use than if they found your phone? Because your phone has a password on it. It's true. Totally. It's a- so then they'd have to get through multiple layers to get to the um, the two-factor app. And you may even have a, you know, a biometrics or something on that. So having it in your phone is probably more secure than just having it dangling from your keys. It's true. It is. It's actually a, a really valid point. Um, because let's say I am traveling and someone steals my key. Now I don't have a key to get into whatever my Google account or my last pass to invalidate the key that was stolen. Cause I don't have another key. That was, that was my issue when traveling because you heard my the story about my bag. Yeah, my my second factor was in in that bag that got that got stolen. Yeah, yeah. Hence my quest to find something better. I think I just need to get better at the Google Authenticator app and being having that be more portable because there's instructions to port that to different phones, which I I sucked at apparently. When- and I've I tried the Duo Authenticator, which is very similar to mm-hmm. Google, but it's supposed to have a, a cloud component. And I never like I was hoping that if I restored on a different device that it would have all of my my things on it still. Yeah. But I had to go back in and and regenerate all of the codes, right? And you know, rescan all the QR codes and everything. Um, so I'm not really sure what the cloud component was supposed to do, right. um, or or maybe it just failed for me. Find that copy of those backup codes that you had for some of the services as well, yeah. which is scary. <laughs> You're like, oh, I set that up like a year ago. My like, crap, where did I save those backup codes? In a really safe place because the backup code is your second factor, right? Anyway, I don't know. I just like the physical token, but in any case. Uh, learning and tools, you can, there's a couple, I mean, you can embed Meterpreter and Android APKs. I, this is uh, interesting, but also I think... Um, Something that's pretty common in the Android world, right, is you can put APKs inside of APKs. Like there's all kinds of ways to Trojan an APK. And, and one reason why Android is uh, suffering on the security side, I think, is just because they've made it so easy to do evil things with the APKs. Well, and uh, that's one of the things people love about Android. And that's one of the things people hate about Android is mm-hmm. that it is a, a more open and free community, but you're giving up some safety, just like anything where, like TSA, for example, you, you're giving up some freedom for safety. Um, right. So In some cases, getting a free fondle too, which is, I mean, bonus. <laughs> but like with Apple, uh, Apple apps, they're um, you know they're 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 vetted and they they beat out Android in a lot of ways in terms of security, but in terms of functionality, um, I mean, I've got Kali installed on an Android device. Like, I could never do that with an iPad. You know, and what's interesting, one of, and it sounds silly, but one of the reasons that I prefer Android is just simple things like I can change my default text messaging app. Like, 
you'd literally give up that level of control unless they've changed it in iOS. But uh, is, is that true in iOS? I don't really use iOS anymore, largely because I wanted the flexibility to do things like change my default uh, application for text messaging. So I don't use my carrier's text messaging anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I use Signal for my text messaging, but I can make Signal the default app for text messages on Android. Whereas when I had iOS, I couldn't unless they've changed it. But I mean, I can still use it, but it's not the default one. I'm just petty like that. <laughs> um, so some scanners for uh, looking for the libssh vulnerability that we talked about earlier. Um, I, I mean, your mileage is going to vary. So, you know, I worked in vulnerability management for, for quite some time. And, you know, anytime there was a big vulnerability or even medium-sized vulnerability um, in, in terms of the ubiquitous nature of the vulnerability, you know, someone or more than one person would put together some uh, kind of one-off scanner and your mileage is going to vary, right? Typically, when those are first released, their accuracy is questionable at best. As people use them, if they're open source, which typically they are, they get a little better over time. Um, but, you know, I, I always felt that what was available commercially actually was, was somewhat better. Um, and a lot of that is due to the size of the customer base and the feedback. In other words, when one of the big vulnerability management companies puts out a plugin to say you can check for this, they've got thousands of customers that are scanning ridiculously huge networks in, in a lot of cases. And so if it needs to be tweaked and there's a team of developers behind it, it happens pretty instantly. When you've got like a free script, like in this libfsh example, it doesn't have that infrastructure behind it. Uh, so they tend not to be as accurate, but are a good way to start testing things out in your lab. I would hesitate to recommend you unleash that on your you know, production network, especially without testing it first. Um, but the other thing is, is some of those free things may come to be available quicker than some of the other uh, updates as well. And that's just, you know, do you want speed or reliability? And there's a balance between the two. I, I think this SSH vulnerability is going to be around for a long time. So this will probably end up in the arsenal of pen testers everywhere. Yep. Agreed. Sure. Some variant of it. Yeah, as well as RDP uh, testing. As apparently, I, RDP is still like a thing. Into, like I remember coming across it when I worked at the university and it had some vulnerability at the time, if not configured a certain way, I think was the case. Like basically I could sniff the credentials in clear text. And that was the way it was. This, we're talking like back in 2001, right? And... No one wanted to change. And so I set up a little example and I sniffed the credentials and they were like, oh my God, that's horrible. We didn't realize how much risk that posed and switched to something else. And I thought Microsoft did a better job with RDP, but apparently people just expose it to the internet, um, which is bad. Well, at least it's got some encryption and this tool supports the encryption, um, whereas some of the previous uh, man-in-the-middle tools were really just... Um, trying to get RDP to downgrade. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and food for thought. There's a cybersecurity hiring gap. This one's kind of interesting. I, you know, there, most people will point out the fact that there's not enough cybersecurity professionals. Uh, some will point out that people are just hiring for the wrong things, that you're never going to find your ideal candidate with uh, you know, the requirements that you put out are just unreasonable and therefore we have a shortage because of the way we're trying to hire. 
I think there's, you know, some of both going on. Your thoughts, April? I thought that this was full of some really good ideas, both for um, job seekers and for hiring managers and HR and things like that. Um, just uh, in terms of how to word a question, um, rather than saying, do you have a degree, um, you know, what is your view of the world? Like, that's like a total, uh, total turnaround from what we've been asking before. Um, uh, instead of asking somebody if they can program, say, show me some code. Um, yep. Looking at the body of work that somebody has created on their GitHub or whatever, um, rather than uh, requiring them to have three to five years of experience. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, you know, I was talking about it. I did an interview uh, with another show that will be, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, promote it on our shows. Uh, and I remember my first job as a programmer when I was still in college, like I had to whiteboard out code. Uh, and, you know, they just asked me, like, how much experience do you have coding? Uh, and I said, well, I, you know, I took classes when I was seven and stuff. And they were like, all right, show, show us on the on the whiteboard. And that was pretty nerve wracking. But a way more accurate thing than just saying you need three to five years experience as a developer, right? So I, I like that level of, uh, you know, interviewing and, and finding potential candidates, for sure. Totally. And I mean, any, uh, any of today's modern candidates are updating their resume for every job they apply to anyway whether it's for keyword searching um, within the, uh, the HR databases of resumes, or if it's uh, because if they don't see the exact wording on your resume that it says in the job description, they won't even look at you. Wow. Um, so people are actually tailoring their resumes and, uh, and trying to make it look like they're more uh, uh, tuned to the job than yeah. if they just had a single resume like people used to do. And uh, along the same lines, uh, Disney is helping uh, women become coders. It's actually something. Is, I, go ahead, Amy. This is awesome. I think this is so cool. Um, they, uh, I mean, it was a really, really tough program to get into, but it's uh, taking people that don't code, don't have any IT background, and um, just giving them. Uh, training and support on the job to be able to get into coding. They're they're given mentors from within the existing IT organization. They are um, and they're actually allowed to go back to their old jobs if they don't like it. I, I mean, this is That's like a cool. model that if yeah. they could if they could pro produce some sort of uh, you know documentation about how they did this and share it with the world, this would be just incredible for companies to. Um, to provide new career paths for people. Yeah, and it's interesting and, and, and somewhat ironic uh, is I, I talked about this in my, um, and I'm not sure if they mentioned it in this article, but I talked about it in my DerbyCon talk. Um, and they actually don't mention this article, but it's really ironic because the name of the project uh, is called Alice. You can get it at alice.org. And it's uh, based on research. If you read the last uh, lecture with, uh, with Randy, um, it's one of his students, computer science students, that did this research project that basically said that uh, females, in particular, their study was with teenage girls, learn programming much more quickly and adopt to it much better if they're allowed to tell a story with it. So when the learning of the programming is set in the context of telling a story and storytelling, 
they found that there was a much higher adoption uh, in, in women, um, which is really interesting to think about. And like, there's a whole research paper that I linked to that like, if you don't believe me, like this is legit research. And it's the kind of the basis for founding the Alice.org project, which is an entire programming language geared towards helping people learn programming similar, similar to uh, Scratch uh, and Tinker. So that, I thought that was really cool. I don't know if you've seen the Alice.org. If you haven't, April, I'm curious to, for you to check it out and give me your thoughts. Yeah, I want to check it out. That sounds that sounds really interesting. Um, I would worry, I, uh, knowing nothing about it, I would worry that, um, that it would maybe only serve, if it was a totally separate programming language than what everybody else was using, it might serve as some sort of a, um, a delineation between things. But um, yeah, I mean, anything that gets... Um, more diverse people into tech and keeps them there. Yeah. For. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, April, thank you so much uh, for appearing on this episode of Application Security Weekly. Thank you everyone for listening and watching. And as Keith would say, make sure you get commit and stay classy.